through the Gospel of John. We're going to read just the first five verses this morning and, and think about that. But I want to, before we do that, I want to give you just a little interesting historical fact here about the Gospel of John. Now, up here on this picture I've got here, this is a, a, a small fragment of the scriptures. It's written on both sides. I've just got one side there. This is what in the technical terms is called P52. It is a, on display in a museum. This is the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament that we know of. So this little piece here, it's just a small piece, is dated somewhere between 100 and 150 AD. And it is a small piece of the Gospel of John. On the side that you can see there is uh, a portion from John chapter 18, verse 31 to 33. So it's just a small portion of it, John 1, 18, 31 to 33. On the other side of it is uh, a small portion of verses 37 and 38 from the Gospel of John. And I thought that's interesting. So this is one of the very earliest pieces of manuscript evidence we have of God's word. And it is from the Gospel of of John. Now, we've come to the Gospel of John. Why, why are we studying this Gospel? Uh, we went through some of that last week as we considered it, but one of the reasons we're coming to study the Gospel of John is because the Gospel of John is written to people like us. It's written to people with a wide range of experiences, a, a large audience. There are some differing opinions about when it was written, I tend, and this isn't written in stone, but I tend to think it was written a little bit later, probably somewhere 80-ish AD, but that's, there is differing opinions on the actual date, but that's not so, so important. But what we do know about the Gospel of John is that it was written for a mixed audience. It was written for an audience which would be both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, so there's some people who are going to be reading this who have a, a very intimate understanding of Jewish customs and laws. But then there would be other people who would be reading it who don't have that same background. And so as you, you'll find as we go through that as John talks about Jewish customs and, and things as he goes through, often he will explain what that means or give a different reference to it so that the Greeks and the Gentiles could understand the Jewish aspect of it and be able to connect the two. John wants us to know, as we've talked last week, he wants us to know that Jesus wasn't just a Jewish Messiah, that Jesus wasn't just for the Jews and about the Jews, but that he was saviour for every tribe and tongue and nation. He's a saviour for all people. So as we look through and as we consider what's going on, you know, as we talked about Matthew, Mark and Luke last week being a lot more event-focused and, and showing us the details a bit more of his life. John isn't so much interested in the, in the raw facts, that is, like, telling us what happened. What John is interested in is, what do these facts mean? So why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus say that? So he's taking the things that we know Jesus did, the facts and the truth that Jesus did, and said, what is the relevance of that, Why does it matter? And so that's what John is trying to get us to come to understand. And here is how he begins his great gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to perhaps one of the most awe-inspiring introductions to any book or any letter, I will make a feeble attempt to try and communicate its truth. And so, God, we ask that your Spirit would open our eyes and enlighten us to the great depths of the mystery of who Jesus Christ is. But above all that, above just seeing who he is, as we recognize that, Lord, move us to submit to you as the great God of all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, as we've said, he wants us to, to know and believe Jesus Christ. And we're going to come to a little bit more about what that means. So that's what he's drawing out. That's what he's explaining. So that by the end of his gospel, we know and believe Jesus Christ. I think it's said one way very well by, by a pastor. It says, to know the glories of Christ is an end, not a means. So what that means is to know the glories of Christ is what we're chasing. That is what we are after. The glory of Christ is not something for us to use to find something better. The glories of Christ is what we are after. He is the great end, not just a way to get what we want. And this is what John is directing us to understand. We want to believe Christ. And as we've mentioned, John masterfully connects these two great truths of the eternal nature of Christ and the temporal nature of his incarnation and our life. And so he begins his gospel by taking us all the way back to eternity past. He takes us to a place where we cannot experience, to a place that we have no knowledge of apart from revelation. And he shows us how this, this place and this time before we have any comprehension affects us right now. That what took place before anything was created, before time began, has huge implications on us right this very moment. These are profound, profound verses. And we could spend a great deal of time digging in and delving through the theology of these, but this morning isn't a theology class. It's a chance for us to look at the theology and see what John is trying to expose to us about who Jesus is. So we're not going to be delving into the great depths of these things. We're going to try and find what they mean, what John means by these, and how they affect us in our life. These are extremely humbling and surprisingly personal verses. And the first thing that we see and the first thing that we're, we're brought to our attention, which just falls on us with, with absolute certainty, is this. Jesus is God. That's where John begins his gospel. Not in any, that's why we don't have a genealogy here, because he's not trying to, to direct us to anywhere else. He wants us to know this first up. Jesus is God. He uses words here in, in the beginning. It says, in the beginning was the word. That is the way he describes who Jesus is. The, the word is a title. It is a name for Jesus Christ. 
Um, for those of you that, that know or understand, it's the, the Greek logos. Jesus is this logos. He is the word. He is the expression of God. Jesus is the expression of God. God communicates to us. That is the most fundamental understanding of this idea of, of word, is that it is communication to us. God isn't distant. He isn't indifferent. God is not a force or an idea uh, that we think, but by his very nature, God communicates to us. Psalm 19 tells us we, we see that God communicates to us in the creation that he has given us. There are things that we can know about God by what we see in the world around us. Romans 1, 20, verse, uh, verse 20 tells us the same thing, that God communicates to us through his creation. We can know things about him. He began communicating from the very beginning when God created everything, and then he created Adam and he created Eve. God began communicating with them from the very beginning. He instructed them what he expected of them and what they should do. And then every day, God himself would come and communicate and walk and interact with his people. 2 Timothy in uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is literally breathed out by God. The scriptures are God's communication with us. It's how we know God speaks. But of all the ways that God communicates with us through creation and through his word, the most profound, the, the penultimate communication that God has given to us of himself is Jesus. Jesus is the grand and glorious word of God. Philippians chapter 2 tells us but, uh, that Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Eternal God came to be like us. God became like us so that he could communicate to us who he is in a personal, understandable way. As Jesus walked this earth, he, he told us what God was like. He showed us what God was like. As he interacted with people, as he spoke, he, he taught us. And he made the eternal truths of, of God knowable, understandable, and in some ways seeable. It's what makes verse 14 of John chapter 1 so exquisite. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld glories. The glories as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is in Christ we see the glories of God. We see the magnificence of who God is. When it comes to this idea of the word, and why John chooses uh, through the, the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to use this way to describe God. It's a word that this, this logos word is a word which both the Jews and the Greeks understood. They had some similarities in how they understood this word worked in their world. And to the, uh, the Jews, it was an expression of, of divine power and wisdom. 
It had that idea to it. They understood it as being deeply personal. So this was an expression of the divine mind of God in a personal way. And that's how the Jews, so if you were a Jew reading John, you would understand that in this there was a a personal aspect to what he's describing for us. But the Gentiles and the Greeks didn't see it so personally. They saw it as an impersonal idea. So it it, uh, described more of a creative force or a source of wisdom. It was, maybe we might describe it now as the idea that there is something out there that makes sense of everything, but we don't quite know what it is. There's something there. But to them, it didn't have that personal touch to it that it did to the Jews. But the idea with both of them, so both Jews and Greeks, no matter what uh, place you came from, understood not only did this have to do with communicating and showing something about divine power or wisdom, they also understood it wasn't just about communicating, but it was about communicating with power. That there was something to it. To the Jews, God's word wasn't just sounds. It wasn't just speaking. It wasn't just empty noise. To the Jews, the, the word of God accomplished things. They knew it had magnificent power. So Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. So when they would read things like this, that's the type of thing that would come into their mind. They had that background of understanding that God, when he communicated, when he spoke, when he did what he needed to do, it had power to affect things. And deeply personal. It meant to communicate and to accomplish purpose. Consider the way we use words. We have sayings like the pen is mightier than the sword. It is that the way we use our words has an impact or an influence which can be far greater than than war. We've seen it even this, this week, in this last week, and we as we watch the news and we've seen the Ukrainian president rise to prominence. And one of the things that has gone viral has has been just a short statement he made which inspired his people. I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. It's a simple statement which made a huge difference in the lives of the people of the Ukraine. The way we use words has the power to affect, has the power to change. So Jesus isn't just to tell us who God is, but to communicate with us with the intent to change. The word of God is not just about communication, but about communicating to change, to bring about change. Of course, the Greeks understood this and the the Gentiles understood it uh, less personally. It was an impersonal idea, but it was still powerful. They still believed that whatever this was, this word, this communication was, it had power. So John is showing that whether you believe that there is this this deeply personal communication of God or whether you believe that there is something out there, some force or some power which kind of makes sense of everything, John is bringing us to understand that whether you think it's deeply personal or impersonal, this word, this communication of power is a person. Jesus. We have the same thing in our world today. The vast majority of our world believes that there is something out there that makes sense of the world. 
Maybe it's a, a big bang, or maybe it's some force, or maybe it's something else, but we have a thousand different ways that our world and the people in our world think there is something out there that makes sense of the world, and we don't know what it is. So our job, like John's, is to say that something out there is Jesus. He is the one that makes sense of the world. He is the one who causes all things. We must connect with Jesus. Jesus is God because he is the expression of God. But John also shows us that he is eternal God. He is eternal God. He is the source of all things. He begins his gospel with, in the beginning, deliberately, I believe he's deliberately trying to draw our attention to remind us of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. So there is a deliberate connection he is making there between the word who was in the beginning and the God that we know in the beginning that created all things. The phrase in the beginning is an expression of timelessness. So it's not saying that he had a beginning or that this was his beginning, but rather at the beginning of all we know, he was already there. In the beginning was the word. That is, at the beginning of all things, he was already there. He was there. He already existed. This is one of the reasons why John draws out these I am statements of Jesus, which we mentioned last week and we'll see as we go through, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. He draws those out because those are statements of deity. Those are statements of eternality. In the beginning was the word is an expression of existence. He just was there. He was just there. Jesus didn't become God. He wasn't created as God. Jesus didn't become God or manifest as God when he was born. Jesus always was God. He is the eternally existent Son of God. He has always existed as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He then is the source of all things. And this source of all things is personal. Remember, John is showing us that the source of all things isn't just a force or an idea or a big bang, but that the source of all things is a person. A person with the ability to communicate a person with the ability and the power to create. He is the great first cause. The one who caused all other causes. He is the expression of God. He is eternal God. John also shows us in these few verses that he is fully God. Completely and wholly God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Verse 2 says the same. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 2 is a deliberate restatement of it. So yes, it is repetitious, and it's deliberate. So that we're reminded and our attention is drawn to these absolute, 
truths. That little phrase, was with God, is an expression of the Trinity. We've sung about the Trinity this morning in a couple of the songs we've, we've sung. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, the Son, is present with Almighty Father. And he was present with Almighty Father in the beginning. Coexisting with the Father and the Spirit in eternity. That little phrase, that little word, with, means not just presence, but interaction. So when it says there that in the beginning the word was with God, we have different ways that we use that idea of with. So we might say uh, something like, oh yeah, I'll go with you, meaning we'll be present there. We'll, We'll be there, we're with you. Or we might say, perhaps as we're sitting with someone in distress or someone who's hurting, and maybe we have our arm around their shoulder and we look at them and say, I'm here with you. Which is more of, a, not, of not just an expression of I'm present, but I'm interacting with you. You have my attention. You have my complete person with you. And that's what that word with means. It has the idea of being face to face. The Father and the Son are together and they speak face to face in relationship, in unity. It literally expresses a face-to-face, close communication. He exists with God as God. You can see the diagram I have behind me there, and I've, I've placed that in a small form on your notes there. It's a simple way that we, we use to try and to express what we mean by the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, that there is one God. One God, three persons. Father, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But you'll notice in between those, it says is not, because the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. Neither is the Spirit the Son. They are distinct. One God. Completely distinct persons. The same in essence. The Word was with God. He is entirely, fully, and wholly God. Jesus is no lesser God. He is no created God. He is no substandard God. He is completely and wholly and fully God who existed in eternity past as the Son of God. John begins his, his gospel here by telling us that Jesus is God. Secondly, as we come to verse 3 of our verse, he tells us that Jesus is creator. Jesus is creator. As the creator, what we know is that he is creator of all. He is creator of all things. He is the creator. He is not created. So verse 3 says, all things, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. He is not created. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 are one of the most glorious passages that lift our attention to such amazing heights. In Colossians 1, verse 15, it says, Who is the image, this is Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? That is preeminent, not firstborn as in born, but firstborn as in preeminent, above all. The firstborn of every creature. For by him, that is by Jesus, were all things created that were in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and all things were created for him. All things were made by him. He is not only the creator, but he is the sustainer of all things. He keeps everything as it should be. He has created all things. Christ is active in every detail of creation. Every detail of it. So when we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. The Son is at work. Jesus is active. Not the smallest detail is made apart from him. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Says, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and pardon me, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. The problems in our world are due to sin. The answers to those problems is Jesus. As creator, as creator, when Jesus is creator and he is creator of all, it also means this, that he is ruler of all. To be creator of all is to be ruler of all. He is over all. We read that in Colossians 1, which says he is the firstborn. That is, he is the preeminent one. He is above all. He is the first of firsts. He is preeminent. He is before all things. And as creator, he is also ruler. He is over all. Because as we read in Colossians 1, verse 16 tells us that all things were created by him and for him. For him. We weren't created because God was lonely. You know, there are times when people say, oh, God, you know, God, God needed somebody to talk to. He created us for fellowship. Sure, God did fellowship and he communicates with us, but God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed someone to talk to. He created us for his glory. For his glory above all things. Not because he's arrogant but because he is worthy of glory. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. And thirdly and finally this morning, Jesus is savior. Verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus is savior. John tells us one of the things he means by that is this, that Jesus is the giver of life. He is the one who holds life in every sense of the word. He is the giver of life. 
John's main focus through his gospel is eternal life. So not just physical life. John's focus is that there is life beyond that, that he came to give us life eternal beyond just this world, which is to know God deeply and personally. This isn't just about life as existence, that we have an existence, that we have life. It is about the quality of that life. It is about the longevity of that life. It is about life in eternal perfection, in the glories of everything that God created life to be, to know why we were created, and to find freedom in living that experience of why we were created. You can exist without Jesus. That is, you can live in this life and you can have a life in this earth without Jesus. But that's just existence. It is not life. Because that is not what God created life to be. He had something greater in mind. Without Jesus... There is only destruction, destruction from sin, because we are sinners. We are condemned in our sin, which gives us not the life God intended, but an eternal life of condemnation and judgment. Jesus came to give us abundant life, he says in John 10, true life. He is the giver of life. And John also tells us that he is the light of the world. Both of these things John draws out a lot more. These are the two main themes that John runs with through his gospel. That Jesus is life and that Jesus is light. So we're going to see a lot more of these two truths as John shows us more depth about what they mean. He is the light of the world. In his life is our light. He is the light of hope in a world of darkness tells us in John chapter 8, Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He shows us the way to God. He shows us the way to joy, to eternal life. He is our hope that one day everything will be made right again. Everything will be as it should be. These are deep, infinite truths. We have, we can't even say we've scratched the surface of them today. We haven't. They're difficult to grasp. Hard to get the realities behind what they are and what they mean. But as we've looked this morning and we've seen just a little bit about what Jesus, what John means by saying that Jesus is God, that he is creator and that he is savior. What does that mean for us today? What does it mean now? Because that's what John intends for us to understand. He's written us so that we don't just know facts, but we know what the facts mean. So why does John begin like this? How do these eternal realities affect who we are. Let me give you a quick rundown of what this means for each and every one of us right now. 
as creator, as creator of all things, everything belongs to God. Now, hear that. Everything belongs to God, including you. As creator, everything belongs to God, including you. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, and the earth with all that is in it. There is nothing in this world, seen or unseen, that does not belong to God. That is not under his authority. You are not your own. You do not belong to you. Whether you believe God or not, You belong to God. He created you. He is your creator. He is the source of all things. Because he created everything, he is the source of all things. Now that means if he created everything and he is the source of all things, there is nothing that he needs. Nothing that he needs. Which means there is absolutely nothing, not one single thing that you have to bargain with God with. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what place in life you are, you have nothing that God is going to say, oh, if you do that or if you give me that, it's all sweet. God needs Nothing. He has everything in himself. I cannot bargain with him. I cannot work enough for him. You cannot buy life. Romans 11 tells us who knows? What God has? Who can question God? Who knows anything about him? He is beyond us. He is higher than we are. As light, as light, he is pure and he is holy. So he drives out darkness, John tells us. It means he will judge sin. Anything and everything that comes short of his perfection will be judged. He has told us as much. He created us with purpose. Not because he needed us. He created us with purpose to give glory to him and to worship him. He created us to enjoy God. To know him truly. To believe Jesus is to believe that Jesus is God. You cannot truly believe Jesus, say that you believe Jesus, if you believe that he is anything less than God. To believe Jesus is to believe that he is God. 
And to believe that he is God, if that is where I must go, because he is God, to believe that he is God, it requires that I submit to him as God. There is no other option. I submit because he is God, or I rebel and come under the condemnation of God. I must submit to his rule. I must repent of my rebellion and seek his forgiveness. The fact that Jesus is God makes every difference to you right now. He is everything that you need. He is God. He is creator. He is savior. And by believing Jesus is savior, you find all of those things. And you find freedom and joy in worshiping God because that's what we were created for. To know the God who created us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to take a moment to just feel the vapor of an eternal depth of glories. It is not enough for us to just think nicely of you. But you have communicated to us so that we would know that you are God. So that you would know what you, we, ex, we are expected to be. So that we would know that there is a way to be freed from our condemnation. So dear God, I pray this morning that if there is someone here who has yet to submit who has yet to find forgiveness from their rebellion and is still under your condemnation. Lord, open their eyes. Let them see the truth and the joy of forgiveness that can be found in you. The joy of a life of worship. Dear God, as a people of God, we pray that we would never forget this glorious truth and the implication that's our lives, too, must be lived in surrender. Surrender to the God who created us, who made us, and for whom we are to give glory in all things. Thank you, and we praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior.